0: Morning, everyone. It's good to be here. It's been a long time. I can't remember last time I was here. Maybe it was uh, maybe it was ten years ago. I'm can't quite remember, but it's really good to be here, and thank you for your consistent support and love that you show to me and Shirley. We thank you for the ministry that you sent us out uh, to perform for Mission in North America. And I'm assuming that I'm going to have a longer sharing time during the Sunday School Hour, but ex- very, very briefly, uh, I want to see an indigenous reform movement among African Americans, particularly uh, uh a cross-cultural ministry uh within our denomination. And to that end, my job is to reach R E A C H. That is, I recruit, I recruit African Americans from reformed seminaries all over the country. I travel and try to meet them before they even enter seminary, while they're in seminary, I, I work with them as they're going through and then try to recruit them into the PCA. I educate. I educate our denomination. I go to presbyteries. I go to churches. Helping our churches to understand cross-cultural ministries. I assess. I'm involved in the assessment center in Atlanta that meets five times a year, assessing potential church planters. I coach. I coach our pastors who are all over the country as they need support and as they need encouragement. I coach them. And then there's an H, which stands for help, and I just needed to treat, to have, to to make the acronym REACH work. So that's why there's an H there. So the presence of African Americans in the PCA has increased significantly since I came in when, when it was like zero, perhaps. And the number of teaching elders now is at 45, which for some is low, and for others it's very and, uh, very encouraging. And I'm... Encouraged by the increasing numbers who are going to seminary, it's slow, it's moving, but it is moving at God's pace. And I tell the young folks that this is multi-generational. It's going to be past my generation. I came into the PCA about 32 years ago, but this is going to take several more generations before we see the inclusion of other uh, minority groups within Presbyterian circles. But I'm encouraged by what the Lord is doing. So, with that brief um, uh, overview of what I do, let's turn to the Word of God. I'm going to be looking at Isaiah 6, a very famous passage that most of us are probably familiar with, Isaiah chapter 6, I'm just going to be reading the first eight verses, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. Hear the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our God, and our King, we thank you for your word, which is a light unto our feet and our path, showing us the true direction of life, showing us what life is really all about, just giving us the revelation of your presence, the sinfulness of man, and what we have available through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray now, Lord, that you would illuminate your word, that we might hear it, that we might be changed, that we might do our duty, our calling, our servant, in joy, in joyful obedience to your call on our lives, that we would know that we are the sent ones, that we are missionaries, each and every one of us, regardless of our call in life I pray Lord that you would illuminate these words in Jesus name I pray amen noted theologian once said a church that is not on mission is not really a church a church exists by missions as the sun exists by burning when a sun loses its burn it ceases to be the sun And when a church loses its mission, it ceases to be a church. When I first read this statement, I was taken aback and thought that it was a bit of an exaggeration, and overstatement. But as I thought about it, I recall the words of John 17, 15, that says, Jesus' words that said, My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You see, we're not saved to just sit back and enjoy life on earth and wait until Jesus comes or the rapture. But we are saved and left in the world and gathered as a church and sent into the world on mission. We are sent into an irreligious, rebellious world to proclaim the message from God a message of good news that God is reconciling the world to himself and not counting men's sins against them. And he has commissioned us, the church, with a message of reconciliation. But so often we lose sight of this mission, don't we? We get caught up in the daily things of life, the busyness of daily life. And I have to admit that even working for mission to North America, I have forgotten the mission. But my favorite passage for helping me to recall, and I'm hoping to help us all recall, the mission that we have been called to is Isaiah 6. Because I believe that encapsulated in these eight verses is the heart of missions. And I believe that the heart of mission lies in the realization that we serve a great and mighty God, that we are sinful human beings, but that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And when we lose sight of these significant truths, we lose sight of the mission that we have been called to. And although we go about the work of going to church and doing the things that we're, we're, we're called to do as Christians, we're not as excited about missions as we were when we first got saved. You remember how you wanted to evangelize everyone that passed you when you were in the McDonald's line? You wanted to tell them about Jesus we need to be reminded of our basic mission. And so today, I want to talk about the basics. God's greatness, our sinfulness, and Jesus who forgives sins. Because I believe that we all tend to carry around an inadequate view of God, and an inaccurate view of ourselves, and an incomplete view of Jesus Christ. First of all, we often suffer from an inadequate view of God. The world has an inadequate view of God and at best and at worst doesn't even want to believe in a God. The world has a view of God as benign grandfather figure with a long beard sitting doing nothing. Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People, wrote... I believe in God, but I do not believe the same thing about him that I did years ago when I, grew, when I was growing up and when I was a theological student. I recognize his limitations. I recognize his limitations, he says. He is limited to what he can do by the laws of nature and by the evolution of human nature and human moral freedom. Even as Christians we can sometimes develop an inadequate view of God. Ed Welch wrote a book entitled When People Are Big and and God is Small because so often we value the opinions of other people more than we do what God has said is true. But our text reminds us that God is not inadequate. In fact, he is sovereign and he is holy verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord seated on the throne high and exalted and the train of his robe fill the temple Isaiah writes that he had a vision of the sovereign king the sovereign Lord in the year that King Uzziah died Isaiah remembers this year because it was a significant year and we tend to remember significant years and events don't we On November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy was shot while riding in a motorcade in Dallas, Texas. And I can still remember where I was seated in my 11th grade class, social studies class. And that just tells you how old I am. (laughs) On September 11th, 2001, American life was changed, wasn't it? And I'm sure that many of us can remember where we were when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City. We tend to remember significant events because they impact our lives. And this was what happened to uh, Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died because King Uzziah was a significant king. King Uzziah was a great king and there had not been a king like this since Solomon. He had reigned for 52 years since he was 16 years old, and he had a remarkable tenure. He had brought glory to Israel. He was extremely popular. His accomplishments were many. And under his leadership, the nation of Judah had grown and had developed in prosperity and peace and stability. But with Uzziah's death, there was uncertainty. What's going to happen to the nation? Would Uzziah's son succeed him well in the north the Assyrians were growing in power and gulping down nations all about them. And an even greater threat was the development of the Babylonian. And there was fright, there was fear, what's going to happen to us? And so it might be understandable when, went, when Isaiah went into the temple that there was some certain level of uncertainty. But what Isaiah may have forgotten, and what we often forget, is that although kings die and nations shake, the real king, the Lord Almighty, is always, was then, and is always seated on a throne, high and exalted. And our message to the world is to tell the world that there is a king on the throne, Daniel 4 says that his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers that he has in heaven and on earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Proverbs 16 reminds us that the lot is cast into the lap, but at every decision is from the Lord. It's so hard to believe that even what goes on in Las Vegas is under the hand of our Lord. Proverbs 16 says that the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. He controls the wicked too. And some of you may be thinking, then why does God still blame us for who can resist his will? But Rem- Romans 9 reminds us that, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? You see, God is in total control, and he doesn't need our permission to do as he pleases. He is sovereign. But not only is he sovereign, he is holy. Isaiah 6 says, Above him were seraphs, and each had six wings, and with two they were covering their faces, and with two they were covering their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah saw Sarah flying about. And just in case you're thinking of little tubby angels with little wings flying, you need to get that image out of your mind. You need to think more like like fighter jets flying about because these are fiery angels flying about. And the Sarahs were calling out. With two wings, they were covering their face because God is so glorious that even sinless angels can't look at him. And two, they were covering their feet, showing humility. And two, they were flying. And as they were flying, they were calling about, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the Hebrew language, when you wanted to show emphasis, you didn't use adjectives, but you used repetition. An example of this is in Genesis 14 when they were talking about men falling into large pits. And in some translations it says tar pits. And they, they use different expressions. But in the Hebrews it's basically pit pit. They fell into pit pits, large pits. In 2 Kings 25 they talk about pure gold. Trying to emphasize the purity of the gold. But the word in the Hebrew is go gold. And so if you wanted to emphasize the holiness of God you would say he was holy, holy. But here we see that God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God that's emphasized three times. There's no other attribute that's so called into into emphasis. Even though God is love, he's not love, love, love. Even though he's merciful, he's not merciful, merciful, merciful. But the repetition of his holiness emphasizes that he is ultimately holy. And his holiness emphasizes the fact that he is separate. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. An object can be holy if it's set apart for God's use. We can be holy. We can be holy. holy people as set apart. But God is holy, 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 totally set apart from his universe. He created the universe. He's not part of the universe, but he is apart from his universe. And if all creation were to dissolve, our God would still be our God. He would still be seated on a throne. Because God's holiness is every part of his being. His power is holy power. His love is holy love. His wisdom is holy wisdom. Holiness is not an aspect of God's personality. It's his very character to be holy. And we lose our passion for missions when we fail to see that we worship a magnificent and righteous and holy God. And the world needs to know this because the world doesn't know that. And it's our job to communicate that. But if we don't know it ourselves, how can we communicate it to the world? But not only do we lose our passion for missions when we fail to see that we have a very adequate and holy God, but we lose our passion for missions when we entertain inaccurate views of ourselves. You see, we often suffer from an inaccurate view of ourselves. Most people believe that man is basically good. Often we hear people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm okay. And even many Christians believe that the world is divided into two kinds of people. There's the good people who go to church, and then there's the bad people who don't go to church. And if we can get everybody into the church, the world would be a better place. I'll leave that for you to debate. (laughs) I would dare say that most of us think that we're slightly above average. Not perfect, we say. And how many times have you heard people say, you know, the problem with the world is that most people. I've never heard anybody say, the problem with the world is me. (laughs) We tend to think that the problem is always outside of ourselves. We think we're basically good people, especially when we compare ourselves to other people. But the Bible tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It says that no one is good, not even one. You mean one? Not even one. And unfortunately, we continue to hold an inaccurate view of ourselves until we see the glory of God. Isaiah was given a vision of God's glorious majesty and holiness, and he saw himself for the first time. Isaiah, who was used to dwelling among the royalty, comes into the the temple And he sees God and he says, Woe to me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, in the presence of perfection, in the presence of holiness, God's holiness, Isaiah feels completely undone. Which is typically what happens when we're in the presence of God. It happens over and over in the Scriptures. Job, who throughout the book of Job is struggling with, Why am I going through this? It's unfair. I demand a day in court with God. And God shows up in in chapter 38 in Job. And Job basically says, Never mind. (laughs) My lips are shut. I spoke too soon. Peter was invited to throw his nest net over the side of the boat. He had fished all night, and he said, we fished all night, there's no fish out there. But to honor you, Jesus, I'll, he throws it over, and he catches such an enormous catch of fish that he realizes that he's in the presence of someone that that is holy. And he says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. Remember the disciples who were terrified because of the storm and Jesus is sleeping and they wake him and he quiets the storm with his word and they realize that they're in the presence of someone really significant and they say, and the, the scripture says they're more even, even more terrified now than they were before the, when the storm was striking. See, when we catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, we see our sin and we're undone. Have you ever felt embarrassed or undone when your sin is revealed? And perhaps this is how David felt when his sin was revealed. He was okay until some, until Nathan said, Thou art the man. You remember David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and tries to cover it up by first getting Uriah drunk and to go with his wife and then having him killed. He thinks he's gotten away with something until Nathan comes to him and he gives him a story about a rich person who throws a banquet and he has all these his own lamb, but he decides to go to his poor neighbors and take his, takes his one little ewe lamb For his party. And David says, That's outrageous. He deserves to die. Until Nathan turns around and says, Thou art the man. Isn't it amazing how we can see sin in other people, but we can't see it in ourselves? You see, we're all sinful human beings committing sins. And of commission and omission, but we're blind. We can't see them until someone shines light on them. We live in a world darkened in its understanding of reality. And as long as it's in some darkness, we think we're okay. Have you ever gotten dressed and cleaned up in very dim light and you thought you were okay until you got into The light, and you looked in the mirror and you realized that you weren't quite made up like you thought you were. You see, humanity thinks it looks pretty good. And we can appear good when we compare ourselves with other people. But have you ever found it interesting that when you're around someone who's better in an area that you think you're good at, how uncomfortable it makes you feel? If you, if you think you're smart, you're okay until you get into a room with people who are much smarter than you are. Or if you're talented, you're, you're very talented and you go away, you, maybe you go to New York and discover that the person playing in, in the subway is more talented than you are. <laughs> That's how it is when we compare ourselves to others and we feel a little less if they're more talented, smarter, prettier. Well, imagine that you're in the presence of perfection. It undoes you. And that's what Isaiah went through. It was unsettling for him to be in the presence of the Almighty God. See, there's this myth that we we believe that as we grow in our faith and knowledge that we get better and better and better and we think more highly of ourselves. But the truth of the matter is that as we grow in our faith and God shines his light on we begin to see more and more of the stuff of sin. And we begin to repent. That was Paul's experience. He starts off his ministry in First Timothy, saying, in First Corinthians, saying that, calling himself the least of the apostles, pretty modest statement. But he put himself up there with the apostles. Later on in Ephesians, he calls himself the least of all God's people. Hmm, a little lower there. And it's interesting that in First Timothy one, he says Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the worst. Seems like is he growing backwards? But what happens is that as we see and more and more of God, as he is revealed to us, we begin to see ourselves more and more and more. And it would be bad news if it wasn't for the good news of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save just such a people as us. Our passion for mission grows as we see the magnificence of God. And our passion for mission grows as we even see our sinfulness because we realize that we have a big God who has come to save sinners. And so often we entertain an incomplete view of Jesus Christ. It's common for the world to think of Jesus as a good teacher a good moral teacher. And sometimes we begin to think the same way. And we use expressions like WWJD. What would Jesus do? As if we can do the things that Jesus does. In spite of the fact that he says, without me you can do nothing. But we need to begin to refocus. And, and, and realize that, that Jesus is so much more than a, than a good example or a moral teacher. We need to realize that Jesus is actually the one that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. John 12 tells us that the apostle John is explaining why after Jesus had done all the miraculous signs, the people refused to believe in him. And he tells us that it was to fulfill the words of Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and darkened their hearts so that they neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn to be healed. And he's actually quoting from Isaiah 6.10. Later, John says that he's explaining why Isaiah was saying these things. And he said the reason is because Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. You see, Isaiah 6 is really all about Jesus. Isaiah 6 shows us Jesus sitting on a throne high and exalted his robes fill the temple with glory and that It's the seraphim that's crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's actually our Lord Jesus Christ. And WWJD just makes a mockery of the reality that we can't do what Jesus does. Something better would be, WDJD, what did Jesus do? Because Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to forgive sins. And Isaiah experiences the forgiveness of, Of sins through the seraphs that come and lay a coal on his lips. That one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You see, sin brings guilt. And we need atonement. We need someone to intercede for us. And in the case of Isaiah, it was the seraph taking this coal and placing it on his lips where his his greatest need was. He needed forgiveness because he he admitted that his his lips were unclean. The things that were coming out of his mouth, even his very preaching, needed forgiveness. Because he was a sinful man. Man. And we too need atonement. We need forgiveness. But we need a lot more than a hot cold, don't we? You see, the truth of the matter is that if Isaiah's sins were going to be forgiven and his guilt taken away, he would have needed to be burned, his whole body and everything. But he only experienced the forgiveness of through the touching of his lips because somebody else took his place. Somebody else was sacrificed. You see, symbolically, this was shown in the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament. The Israelites would often bring a bull or a goat and that animal was sacrificed for them. But we know from Hebrews 10 that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And therefore, Christ came into the world And he said, "...sacrificing offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here am I. It is written about me in the scrolls. I have come to do your will." Isn't it an incredible miracle of God's grace that the one that is high and exalted, seated on a throne disrobed and came to earth. But he did not just come to earth. He walked our streets. He took our abuse and he voluntarily went to the cross and he died that our sins might be forgiven. That we would not have to die ourselves. The Holy One, the one who is holy, 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 Lift it up. Die for us. And it's when we lose sight of this reality that we lose our passion for missions. But when we hear this, when we experience this reality, our passion for missions is revived. Our passion begins with a holy and righteous view of the Sovereign One. A realistic view of ourselves and our sin. And an accurate view of the reality of who Jesus is. You see, we are very much like Isaiah going about doing the business of church daily, and he walked. And my friend Jack Miller used to say that Isaiah went to the temple that day, and the last person he expected to encounter was God. And so often we just go about the business of work, doing the church work, with little zeal. With a little realization, when we come to church, do you expect to see God? Isaiah saw the majesty of God, and I would suggest that that's what we need to see. We need to see the reality of God when we come to church. Now, I know that we're Presbyterians and we're not going to see visions, so I'm not going to take you there. But through the ordinary means of grace, through the reading of the word of God, through the communion, through the fellowship, through, through prayer, that God makes himself real to us. And as he makes himself real to us, we begin to see our sins. And our reaction should not be to cover up our sins, but to confess our sins and to ask for forgiveness. And he is holy and righteous and just and will forgive of us our sins. And we become just like Isaiah. When asked the question, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah, like a little kid, not knowing what the mission was going to be, raises his hand and says, here I am. Send me. And that should be our attitude, as God makes himself known to us. We need to have the attitude of send me. I'm ready to go. It may be dangerous, but it doesn't matter because I've got you, because you're the king. You're the righteous one. Send me. If it's next door to my neighbor, if it's a co-worker, send me. If it's overseas, if it's across the country, if it's to a culture that you're not familiar with, send me. Because I know who I am. I know, what my, I know that my sins are forgiven. And I know the righteous one who sits high on his throne, highly exalted, holy, holy, holy is his name. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. We thank you that one came before us. We thank you that you have made yourself known. If you had not, Lord, we would still be in darkness. But you revealed yourself through your Son. You gave us and you give us your word that illuminates our hearts and the reality that we are fallen that we're rebellious but if you have shown yourself to be good you have shown yourself to be loved by sending your one and only son into the world that he might die on our behalf that we would have the righteousness of Christ Jesus but it's not just for us to enjoy and then one day come to be with you. But you have given us a message of re- reconciliation, that you're reconciling the world through us, the church. And I pray, Lord, for this church. I pray that be a mission-hearted church. I pray that you would reveal yourself more.